1979, the American singer Bob Dylan did something that really surprised his fans. He embraced Jesus and he became an outspoken evangelical Christian. And it seems that Dylan was very serious about it. For the next three years, sometimes referred to as his gospel period, he released three albums that were explicit in their discussion of his newfound Christian faith. And when he played shows, he insisted on playing these religious songs, much to the dissatisfaction of some of his fans who had come to hear songs like Blowing in the Wind and the Times They Are a-Changin'. As the years went on, Dylan seemed to move away from his evangelical faith. But some of the songs that he wrote during that time have persisted. And one of those songs, well, I, I don't know if Dylan was thinking about Romans chapter 6 or if he'd even read it, but the lyrics of one of those songs sounds like it's almost a direct reflection on this chapter. In the verses, Dylan talks about all kinds of different people, rich and important people, poor and downtrodden people, businessmen, doctors and thieves, people named Terry and Timmy and Bobby and Zimmy. You might be any one of those people or you might be someone else entirely, he says, but no matter who you are, as he puts it in the chorus, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. In many ways, that's Paul's central message in this part of Romans. Just like Dylan, Paul is telling these early Christians, look, you're gonna have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Uh, to understand what I mean, it's important to keep in mind something that I mentioned rather briefly when we were talking about Romans chapter three. You might remember how I said that when Paul thinks about sin, he thinks about it in a couple different ways. On the one hand, sin is something which we do. It's our failure to remember and give thanks to God, as he put it in chapter one. It's our abandonment of the, the natural design of our creation for unnatural behaviors such as sexual immorality, greed, envy, slander, and violence. But that's not all it is. Sometimes when Paul thinks of sin, he doesn't think of it so much as human behavior as he does a, a powerful and malevolent spiritual power that has enslaved and tyrannized mankind. And if you pay attention, you'll notice that this is how Paul starts speaking about sin in the final part of chapter five, that, that part where he has this extended comparison between what happened with Adam and what happened with Christ. Through Adam, he says, sin and death came into the world. And in the same way, through Christ have come life and righteousness. And it's clear that Paul's not just talking about sin as human action at this point. Instead, he's thinking about sin as a kind of power who is controlling humanity and bringing destruction. Sin, as he puts it in verse 20 of that chapter, is a power whose reign, whose rule is one of terror and death. Now, Paul's portrayal of sin in chapter five is, as one New Testament scholar puts it, that of a cosmic terrorist. But 
What in the world, you might ask, what does that have to do with Bob Dylan? Well, that's where chapter 6 comes in. Paul ends chapter 5 by talking about how the gift of Christ has defeated the reign of sin and death. But then, in the first verse of chapter 6, he raises a question. If we have already been reconciled with God, if sin and death have really been defeated, then does that mean that we can now just live as we please? Or, to quote him more literally, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Apparently, this is a conclusion that Paul thought some of his readers, some may be tempted to make this conclusion based on what he said about Christ's atoning sacrifice and the gift of justification. And it's a question that he thinks it's vital for him to address. In fact, it's so important that he poses it. He poses the same question twice in this chapter, once in verse 1 and then again in verse 15. And it turns out he was right to be concerned, for indeed there have been movements within the church in various ages, movements that encourage people to draw just this conclusion. In the early church, there were various sects claiming to be Christian, these sects who argued that because salvation comes through Christ, it doesn't really matter what you do in your body. And later on, during the time of the Reformation, Church leaders such as Martin Luther had to contend against similar movements. Luther denounced them. He, in fact, went on to say that they, these people who say you can do as you please, that they worship a different Christ. For a Christ, he says, who died for sinners, who after receiving forgiveness will not quit their sin, nor lead a new life, is worthless and does not exist. And now, in our own day, we can see examples of the same thing when people say that we shouldn't get hung up on talking about sin or holiness and that all that really matters is grace. But Paul has a very different point of view. To the question, can we continue in sin since our sins have been forgiven and we now live under grace? To that question, Paul responds twice with the same resounding answer, by no means. And then to press home the reason for his answer, he discusses the reality of the Christian experience. And he, he talks about it through these two frameworks, death and slavery. At first, in verses 2 to 14, he discusses the relationship of Christians to sin through the framework of death. And the basic logic of his argument here is that at one point in time, he says, each and every one of us we once lived under the tyranny and the control of the power of sin. But then something happened. Then, Paul says, that old self, that version of us who was dominated and controlled by sin, that self died. For, as he puts it in verse 3, all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Now, that's a pretty radical claim. Because what it means is that every person who has been united to Christ, every person who has put their trust in him and has been baptized into his name, each and every one of those people have undergone a form of death. Their old self is dead. And when they died, 
sin lost its claim and control over them. For whoever has died, Paul says in verse 7, is freed from sin. And because that's true, because those who are joined to Christ have died with him, they no longer need to give themselves over to this soul-destroying tyrant who is sin. Instead, Paul says, they should now give themselves over to the service of another power. As he puts it in verse 13, no longer present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Now, this word instrument is an interesting one. In Greek, it's the word hoplon, and it can be used to refer to, it really can be used to refer to any kind of instrument that you use for a task. But the most common referent, the most common use of this word is to refer to, to instruments of warfare, to weapons. So the image Paul is conjuring here is, a, is one of a soldiers fighting for a king. And what he's saying is at one time you were under the dominion of sin and your, your body and your mind, your capacities were being used as weapons to advance the cause of sin and death. But that was your old self. That self died. And now he's saying you have been brought back to life to serve under a new regime. So don't allow sin to control you. Don't allow your mind and body to be used as its weapon, but present yourself instead as an instrument, as a weapon for the cause of righteousness. And that, that leads naturally to the second framework that Paul uses to talk about the Christian's current relationship to sin, which is the framework of slavery. Now remember what Bob Dylan said, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, notice what Paul says in verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Now, anyone who spends much time reading the Bible will recognize pretty quickly that the theme of slavery plays a pretty big role. The people of Israel first experienced God's salvation by being liberated from slavery. And then after generations of disobedience and rebellion against God, they were, they were once again conquered and turned into slaves. The Hebrew prophets proclaimed the good news of God's redemption by declaring that there would be a day when God would come and liberate those who were in captivity or enslaved. And then when Jesus showed up, that is exactly what he said he had come to do. So it should come as no great surprise that Paul uses the language of slavery here. Nor would slavery be a foreign concept to his first readers. After all, they lived in a world in which slavery was a visible reality of their everyday lives. In fact, it's estimated that at the time in which Paul wrote that 20% or more of the entire population of the Roman Empire were slaves. That's one out of every five people. So these early Roman Christians, they knew all about slavery, and they wouldn't have been shocked at Paul's mention of it. What may have surprised them, though, and what certainly surprises many readers of his letter today, 
is how Paul describes the condition of freedom. And notice what he says in verse 18. And that you, having been set free from sin, have become enslaved to righteousness. And then again later in verse 22, but now that you have been freed from sin and enslaved to God. On both of these occasions, Paul's description of the freedom that Christians experience from the power of sin, it's not freedom as you or I might imagine it. Because we tend to think of freedom as the absence of authority or the absence of restrictions on our ability to do what we want. But that's clearly not how Paul's thinking of it. He doesn't talk about that kind of freedom. In fact, it's not even clear that he really thinks that's an option. The choice for him isn't between servitude and autonomy. The choice for him is simply a choice between which master you serve. Through the death of Christ and through your participation in it, he's saying, you have been set free. You have been liberated from the tyranny of those old masters, sin and death. But that doesn't mean, as you might expect, that you now have no master. Your freedom is not a freedom simply to, to pursue your own goals and fulfill your own desires. No, he had, you have been freed, he's saying, so that you might become the servant of a new master, God, the righteous one. Like I said, this is a strange message for us today. We so prize our liberty to do as we please, our autonomy. We so take it for granted that this is the way of life that I think most of us have a very difficult time thinking of ourselves as a servant who owes obedience to a master. When John Lennon heard Bob Dylan's song, Gotta Serve Somebody, he thought it was absurd. So he wrote his own version as a kind of parody response. You gotta serve yourself. Ain't nobody gonna do it for you. Well, you may believe in devils and you may believe in lords, but Christ, you're gonna have to serve yourself and that's all there is to it. I imagine that you and I would be a little less sacrilegious in the way we put things, but I think that if we're honest with ourselves, we'd have to say that we often agree with Lenin, or at least we live as if we agree. We live as if we're, we are our own masters, as if we can serve ourselves. But Paul here is taking the side of Bob Dylan. When we believe that, we're really just deceiving ourselves, according to Paul. When we think like that, it's because we don't recognize the great cosmic struggle that's going on around us. Because the truth is, there are two masters at work in the world, holding sway over our lives and demanding our allegiance. And at the end of the day, whether we know it or not, we will act as servants of one or the other, either sin or God, either righteousness or unrighteousness. And those of us who have died with Christ have been set free from the bondage of death but we still have to choose who we're going to serve. Because, well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna to have to serve somebody.